for May 25th, 2009. It's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 47, Skynet VIP Suite. Welcome to the Overthinking It podcast, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. I am Matthew Rather, I am your host tonight, and I am joined by a panel who, in honor of the big movie opening all over America this weekend, will answer our question of the week, what is your favorite uh, Terminator movie? Which is your favorite entry in the Terminator franchise? From Cambridge, Massachusetts, Peter Fenzel. Two. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Not the one I just saw. From, uh, from where are you this week, Mark? Are you in Huntsville? Just the sparkly broadcasting for Birmingham. Alabama. Oh, Birmingham. Right, right, right. I thought you were from Huntsville, but no, you're no. from Birmingham. If you're listening to this, you are their sisters. <laughs> from Birmingham, Alabama, on vacation with his, with his family, Mark Lee. Mark, favorite Terminator movie? Uh, two. <laughs> I, I, was thinking, I was thinking about making a joke about how the last one I just saw, but no, I can't even do that. <laughs> and I, a- your host, Matthew Rather, from New Haven, Connecticut, my favorite Terminator movie is two. Hey, it's unanimous. Has that ever happened before? <laughs> we all had the same answer to the question. <laughs> no, it's, uh, we, we usually try to avoid that, but I don't think there is any avoidable <laughs> this Not time. So uh, all right. So, uh, as usual, if you have any feedback from what you hear tonight, uh, if, if anything you hear tonight disturbs you, find an adult, or <laughs> or you can email us at podcastedoverthinkingit.com or call the voicemail at twenty eat log zero one. That's two zero three two eight five six four zero one. We have a um, we have a couple listener emails tonight, and so before we get to Terminator, which is obviously what's coming, uh, let's get to those. Megan from Lombard wrote in to podcastedoverthinkingit.com and says to Fenzel, "Yep, Lombard is in Illinois." However, I didn't vote for Blagojevich or Obama. Oh, I might get run out of town for I might get run out of town for that one. It's suburbia, which means there's nothing exciting to do. My latitude and longitude are <laughs> I love I love Mike from LA. If you uh, I know you're listening actually because you comment on the blog. Uh, you started a trend that was absolutely fantastic. Where when you call or write, you give your latitude and longitude. So. <laughs> We should do some geocaching to find, like, key overthinking it listeners, commenters, and emailers. We should do a mashup, a Google Maps mashup of <laughs> listener uh, emails. I mean, I think Illinois is fantastic. Uh, oh, yeah. There's a great one, there's a great one coming up uh, as well also, though. Uh, her latitude and longitude, uh, 41 degrees, 88 uh, – what is minutes. that? That's minutes, right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, 88 minutes north, uh, 87 degrees, 63 minutes west. And here's a quick question – for the panel, does college change your taste in reading? Oh, good question. After mm-hmm. being required to read all or some of the classics, do you find after leaving you actively hunt out more or feel that you've reached your classic literature limit? Uh, and that's from Megan from Lombard. Thanks for writing in, Megan. Uh, I'll throw it to you, Pete. What do you think? 
Well, you know what? After college, I actually became much fonder of reading the classics because suddenly I could take as much time as I wanted and I didn't have to plow through 200 pages of it in a night. So I went on kind of a, a, a spree after college and read through like the Iliad again and, and Moby Dick I read and, and uh, you know the Odyssey, different translations and all that other stuff. And it was really fun. So I would say for me, definitely increases my love of the classics, if only because it becomes so much more pleasant to read them than it was previously <laughs> yeah no doubt uh, yeah. hey uh hey little rat hole here what's your uh, what's your favorite translation of the odyssey my favorite translation of the odyssey yeah oh god isn't that what um, you said like translations of homer Oh, yeah, no, totally, totally. I mean, I, I have much stronger opinions about the translations of the Iliad and of the Aeneid. But of the Odyssey, I guess, you know, um, I liked the Fagels one. I thought it was okay. Yeah. Um, I, I feel like I can't, even though it's not really the best, I can't shake the Lattimore one out of my head. Huh. Because that's the one that I was introduced to when I was a kid. Yeah. And for me, the Odyssey has always had this sort of j- stilted austerity um, because I was introduced to the Lattimore uh, translation. And the Lattimore translation is pretty, I mean, I don't want to say prosaic, but uh, because that's ironic because it's in, it's in verse, I believe. Right, but, it is. Uh, yeah, it's, in, but, it's but, in something approaching that like hexameter verse of Homer. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I like Robert Fitzgerald more than I ought to. Um, no, so I, I, and I'm right there with you. That's, yeah, you know, yeah. having read Fagels, I've read uh, uh, Lattimore, and I've read uh, Fitzgerald, and Fitzgerald is my favorite. I think it reads like a, it reads like a pulp novel, you know? Yeah, yeah. I think I, think I might have to say, if, if you discount the fact that the Lattimore one was the one that I read when I was in high school, and I have a certain sort of begrudging fondness for it, I think the one that if I were to pick one and read it again, it would be the Fitzgerald one, yeah. That's, so. you know, I did the same thing as you, like after, uh, though I was supposed to read it in school, after school was the only time I ever read Don Quixote, you know? Yeah, and that, same like, thing with me and Dante, yeah. And here's the, here's the thing, oh, Mark, do you have, I mean, are you, did you, you didn't study literature in school, <laughs> you know? I so do not have my preferred translation of Homer. <laughs> yeah, no, no, but I mean, I guess you read, you read a lot of what, of his... You read a lot of like historical scholarship in school or something, right? Um, I'm going to put some air quotes around red <laughs> for that. Okay. Yeah, I didn't do so much a whole lot of reading, per se, in college. Fair enough. Um, to, answer, to answer the two questions there, um, well, I didn't really read a whole lot of classics while I was in college, as I've you know, demonstrated multiple times on this podcast, and I don't read them now, so there's no change there. Um, if anything, the, the, the first question, if it's changed my taste in reading, I would simply say that, well, um, when I was in college, I was required to read uh, dry history texts, and so I don't read those anymore. So in that sense, my taste in literature has changed. <laughs> yeah. Here's, here's, my, here's my observation on this, Megan. Uh, in college, your enjoyment of what you read is irrelevant, I mean, you may enjoy it or you may not, but it's beside the point of the educational goals of reading. This is distinct from the larger, broadly humanistic goals of a liberal arts education, which are supposed to uh, instill in you a lifelong love of learning, whatever that means. Uh, but as far as the specific skills that you are um, that you're developing in literary scholarship, your enjoyment is irrelevant. To those, so um, right. So in a way, you're set free after you graduate from school, uh, because you suddenly have nothing but your enjoyment to 
to worry about unless you are a literary scholar, right? Uh, you know, and so you, you get reconnected with the idea that writing and reading books is something that people do because they like it, because it enriches their life rather than, uh, rather than it's being, you know, this, this kind of dry obligation and a long, hard slog through, say, Don Quixote, which I read in a shitty translation in college, and the, the one by, uh, it didn't come out till afterwards, alas, but the one by Grossman is, um, is a lot better. Uh, I hope that helps you, that, Megan. That, that, yeah? that Grossman, yeah, that was really scintillating. I totally, you <laughs> know. I got nothing, man. Nothing. No, I hadn't read Don Quixote. Well, you know what, Mark? This is. I think that this next letter uh, is going to uh, is gonna is gonna bear on this as well. So this is from uh, this is next letter is from Daniel. Um, Hi, Daniel. Daniel, uh, my name is Daniel, and he says I am from the totalitarian police state of Australia at precisely. Oh, and he goes into to oh, wow. Uh, so wow, uh, memo to Skynet, right? Like uh, <laughs> uh, Daniel is from the totalitarian police, totalitarian police state of Australia. Precisely twenty-seven degrees thirty minutes, twelve point three one seconds Second. south. Yep. Uh, one hundred fifty-three degrees four minutes, three two point one eight seconds east. I have two requests. There has been much talk on the podcasts of Matt Rather's elitism, and I've been fascinated by the phenomenon. By the, I, oh, I, uh, maybe I should do an Australian accent while I read this. No, no, I definitely no, no, should not. Phenomenon in American politics of labeling candidates elitist as some kind of slur. Can you discuss what you all think elitism actually means, whether it's a bad thing, and how it is distinct from simply being elite? And I'll point out that Daniel spells out the word elite and does not spell it 3133 plus. Uh, Number two. Between Bond villains, zombies, Skynet Terminator, the Joker, the Cloverfield monster, Satan, giant asteroids, aliens, the mob, evil corporate executives that squash the little guy, Nazis, etc., there's a real variety of movie bad guys. I actually would argue that there's more in common between a lot of those than there is that's really different. But okay, Daniel, there's a, a lot of movie bad guys. Can you please discuss what makes a good movie villain and discuss the different types? Uh, and great thanks to Mark Lee for his effing awesome monster ballad, I'll Be Back, and to Fenzel for his epic overthinking of 24 and Obama. Hey, well, thank you, Daniel, for the nice things. Uh, he didn't say, and Daniel didn't say effing, uh, he said something else, but we try to keep it PG-13 here on the <laughs> podcast. Uh, so, Andrew Daniel, Snow. hey, thanks, thanks very much. I'm, it's awesome that we have international uh, listenership elsewhere in the Anglophone world, right? Oh, that's totally awesome. That's great. Uh, so elitism, my, this is what, uh, Mark, this is what I was thinking of when I said that, you know, you like, I think it's not bad not to have read, you know, a lot of literature that's more than a hundred years old. I think that's fine. Like, you know, I did it and I enjoyed it, but I did it because I I enjoyed it or enjoyed the, the doing of it at the time. Right. And, uh, sure. But uh yeah, but just real quickly, we talked about this, I think, before on the show, is that um, I do feel a little bit of insecurity because a lot of the Western canon 
uh, having read the Western canon or pretending to have read the Western canon uh, and being able to talk like you have read it is often at the cornerstone of a lot of the pseudo-literary analysis that we do of pop culture um, on the site, which is obviously not the only thing that we do on this site, but it, you know, at, at some kind of you know, cornerstone, very foundational level, it's there. You know what I mean? Right, right, right. Sure. So, I mean, and I guess, I mean, so there, I guess so, but that like... Yeah, Mark, you go ahead. Yeah, these, these okay, there's just a little bit of delay, I guess. So there's theoretic these books are theoretically on my list. Um, but that list is, is kinda long. I think my Netflix queue is uh you know higher priority than that uh theoretical mm. list. <laughs> Classics which may or may not exist. Yeah, right. Rather than rather than Jacques Derrida's seminal structure sign in play in the discourse of the human sciences. No, uh, I'm gonna watch <laughs> Baba Hotep before I read that. Yeah. <laughs> Here, can I jump can I jump in and talk about elitism for please, a bit? Please. Please. I, would, I would say that, that elitism for Americans, and it's a really cool insight because it took me a while to process it, but I think elitism means that you, you willfully ignore a, a parent pragmatic world or like the people that you're talking to and the things that they care about because by showing that you're paying attention to things that have needed authority, um, you then are allowed to feel superior to the people around you. So there's a hypocrisy. Because you're saying that you're doing it in the name of knowledge a lot of the time, or in the name of smarts, but the act is one, the more active act is one of ignoring than of participating. It's not like, oh, he's such an elitist, you know, he reads, um, you know, Moby Dick, oh, he reads the Odyssey and he has a favorite translation. It's no, he's so elitist, he, he can't, like, uh, he doesn't know which football team is in his town, you know, he, he doesn't go to regular hamburger places. Like, those are the pejorative sides of it, is that he, he shuns the things that you like in the names of pursuing the things that he thinks makes him better than you. Um, and in that sense, it's sort of a, a, a social rejection, and that's why people resent it. It's because you feel like this person is rejecting you socially and rejecting your lifestyle. So in politics, you want a representative who identifies with you and supports your lifestyle, not somebody who is actively rejecting you, because then why are you voting for them and giving them your support? Right? Um, I mean, does that make sense? Yeah, but the, I mean, isn't the irony that... You know, you're you're actually doing this. You're you're singling them out for rejecting you socially, uh, as ammunition for rejecting them socially or politically or whatever. Oh yeah, I mean, I think when you call someone an elitist, there's a sense of leveling the playing field. You're being like, oh, you're going to hit me, I'm going to hit you back. Yeah, right? or, or it's like, yeah, no, you have all these highfalutin ideas about you're being better than me. Well, you are not, in fact, better than me, sir. I, sir, am better than you because yeah. I go to regular hamburger places and know what the uh, football franchise is in my town. Exactly. I mean, I I'm, I'm, don't think that – I think they're cut from the same cloth, but the question is – how many people are on each side of this divide, right? Like the, the majority is on the non-elitist side. That's why they're called the, the elitists, right? Well, they're called the elitists because they're the best, right? Um, that's what, where elitism come from, I think, or... Yeah, actually, right, because, yeah, the there's... A, there, uh, yeah, no, an elite is a, uh, is a group of people who are sort of set apart or set above by virtue mm-hmm. of, of uh, superior virtue of some kind. Right, right, right. And so the idea is you're setting yourself above from somebody. And I think there's also something undemocratic about that in uh, the sense that you are claiming to have a certain nobility, which is very much anathema in American culture. Um, sure. You, though it's – I mean uh, a lot of things – like I, I think the framers of our political system were – our federal political system anyway were a lot more elitist than they're commonly given credit for. Oh, of course. Of course. Definitely. I mean the no, – you know, true. I think the idea was 
you know that that uh, the people didn't elect the the president, for example, directly. Right. They uh, elected electors. Uh, I think the idea was that it would ultimately all be hashed out in the House of Representatives, right? Like, uh, well, I think, I, yeah, I think the hatred of the elite is, of the elite doesn't come from the American Revolution as much as it comes from the French Revolution, and and you see that in the election of Andrew Jackson as sort of the backlash against um, the the early 1800s espousal in America of certain values from France and this idea that. Um, and like you have this back and forth between the people who are trying to be the stewards, like the sort of paternalistic farmer fathers of the country, um, versus like the regular people who feel like they ought to have a say and like march to Napoleon's tune and go and like conquer the world in the name of democracy, right? Sure. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. And there's, I mean, and I think that like education, right, plays a role in that. That like you know we're the the salt of the earth, the the good working people, and those highfalutin like those George Washingtons who insisted on being called Sir George all the time, right? Like, well, and that George Washington didn't do that. George Washington insisted on being called Mister President, which, so he's a <laughs> he's a bad example because he was like the least elite of the founding fathers. Um, he was very very much about his like popular duty and like. His uh, his hum- humility is one of his chief virtues. Really, I had a different I had a different picture of George as kind of being Anglophilic in a way. Oh, really? Yeah. I, mean, I don't know how much of this is myth and how much is reality. Of course. But, yeah. He um, also could not tell a lie, and that's true. He, he chopped down a chair. I mean, he was like constitutionally incapable. <laughs> it's also named after a large city in Ohio. George Washington, Cincinnati. <laughs> oh, Cincinnati. Right? Yeah. Not named after. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Down. Yeah. I would say, <laughs> right? Like, I, I would say that. Um, you know, I, I guess I get tarred with being the, uh, with being the elitist. I, I'm not totally sure why that is. I, I, I guess I, I play up to it a, lo- a, a lot of that for comic. It's because you don't like sports, rather. That's why. <laughs> if you look around the room and you can't find the elitist, you're probably the elitist. <laughs> well, um, no one here seems to be all that special. <laughs> I, I, you know, it's uh, there's a um, there's a uh, there was a New York Times article this week from a uh, I think University of Chicago PhD who uh, started repairing motorcycles and left the academic world and. Uh, and you know, in favor of this li- this life as a as a uh, the owner and I think sole worker in a motorcycle repair shop, and he was talking about the the sort of the rewards of concrete manual uh, work, and he was contrasting this with his experience in a cube farm. In uh, you know, I think San Francisco or something. Well, I forget exactly where, but in a sort of knowledge worker job uh, that he had had before, where he started experiencing a lot of the conditions that Marx described as uh, being endemic to alienated labor, and uh, that he's sort of cured of this when um, you know when fixing motorcycles, which is has the satisfaction of doing something tangible, coupled with the intellectual challenge and thrill of uh, sort of diagnosing and solving mechanical problems and and things like this. And I think that this points us in a good direction. You know, insofar as I'm an elitist, I think that there is such a thing as education and that it matters. You know, but I don't think it's the only thing that matters, and I don't think it's the only thing that's valuable. And I think that we can get into this very black and white sort of. Either or mentality where it's like, you know, 
either you know all you care about is the post-structuralists or else you're you know swilling domestic beer out of cans and uh you know yeah it's just otherization it's the same thing that causes all sorts of racism i mean it's just another angle on marxism right which is just you know identifying classes and having them fight against each other you're just turning someone else into the other so that you can fight them and like feel good about it and feel better because you're putting somebody else down yeah, sure. Yeah, when he calls them you know, I read – okay, so here's – this is what uh, – Phi Beta Kappa publishes a magazine called The American Scholar. And I was reading an article in The American Scholar the other day by uh, a guy named William Derezowitz, who was a professor uh, uh, when – and I actually – I took a class for like three days that he taught – um, he was a professor uh, in college, and uh, and then I dropped the class. <laughs> but um, but he wrote this this article about uh, the disadvantages of elite education, uh, by which I think he means like the Ivy League and other highly selective educational institutions. And he tells the story of having a plumber, um. Uh, come to fix his, you know, pipes or something, some plumbing in his house. And, like, for the 30 seconds, 60 seconds that he was kind of standing there with the plumber, like, he was like, I didn't know how to make conversation with this guy, you know? And here we are, two people, you know, right? Two regular Americans, uh... And we're of such different worlds that, like, I didn't know how to sort of bridge the gap and and talk about that. You know, talk right. talk to uh, you know talk to this guy about anything. Um, so, you know, I, I guess it is a real. I, I think it is a, a real phenomenon that there there is uh, some kind of. I don't know if I want to call it stratification, but there is some kind of difference uh, yeah. between people and their backgrounds. And mm-hmm. it's, it's such a huge country, you know. Mm-hmm. But uh, I, I, what I would like to take out of it, though, is the kind of moral uh, dimension of it. That, like, you know, those, um, those uh, latte-swilling, Volvo-driving, you know, uh, weak-hearted blue state liberals uh, are not real Americans, or those, you know, rednecks are not real, are not, you know, real intellectuals or something like that. You know, I, I think we can, I well, think we can all be different and still all be okay. But rather, I think you're you're addressing the kind of the symptoms of what is a root issue, and the root issue being that you know American society is getting more balkanized, and that is the trend into keeping keeping um, into keeping into you know, continually, you know, subdivide America into smaller chunks. You know what I mean? Yeah, sure. So that Google can target pay-per-click advertisements at uh... <laughs> Hey, can I, can I address the second question? Yeah, absolutely. Maybe, cool. maybe we should move on from elitism. I don't know. If you have, <laughs> if you have something to say about elitism, write podcast at overthinkingit.com or call the voicemail. Yeah. Cool, cool, cool. Moving on. So I, all right, so I would, I would divide movie villains into three basic categories. Um, you've got movie villains who are trying to kill the hero. Then you have movie villains who are trying to take something that the hero wants. And then you have movie villains who uphold a status quo that the hero must destroy. Um, I was just sort of coming up with these off the cuff. So you've either got villains that are there, and so going in reverse order, a villain who's there, and the hero has to come in and do something, right, because he has a destiny or he has a, a need to do this. You have a hero who is a villain who's trying to mate with someone the hero wants to mate with or, like, take an artifact or, like, you know, uh, you know take over a town or something that the hero really wants. Or there's, like, the battle for survival. 
Right. Um, I think personally the best villains are the well, – I mean there's great villains in all of these categories. Um, I think the best villains pick a category and stick with it, and they don't tend to oscillate back and forth too much. So like the Terminator, when it's trying to kill Sarah Connor, isn't also trying to make out with her, for example. <laughs> <laughs> like like, like, like a lot of movies run into that problem where like the villain is like trying to kill the hero, but then the villain kidnaps the hero's girlfriend in order to get to the hero. But then the villain starts making out with the girlfriend and then like dresses her in crazy – clothes, and it's just like, what the hell is going on here? What is he trying to accomplish? Speaking of Renee Bellock from Indiana Jones and Raiders of the Lost Ark? Uh... Maybe, That's exactly maybe. what you described, right? Yeah, I was thinking more about the, the Genghis Khan villain from The Shadow, who I would categorize as a terrible villain, because he, like, comes from five different directions at once, and, like, you're not trying to, you can't figure out what he's trying to do, right? Um, but, yeah, I mean, I don't think that, I think Raiders of the Lost Ark is great for a lot of reasons, but I don't think it's really, it has a really great villain. Um, like, I, I would say that the villain in Temple of Doom is much better than the villain in Raiders of the Lost Ark. He's not better performed, mind you, but he's better written. Um, because the villain in Temple of Doom is the third kind. He's a status quo villain, right? He, like, he has his own little world, and the hero has to come in and destroy it. And he is so into this world that he's in. And I mean, yeah, trying to kill the hero is part of it, but I don't think this guy really cares all that much about whether Indiana Jones lives or dies, except insofar much as is part of his worldview. You know? Like, he's got a, you know, Colleen, all that nonsense. Um, but what yeah, about, so I, I mean, there's also, there's like the Dr. Evil type of villain, which is, I think, like a version of the, the Darth Vader type of villain, where, you know, he wants to take over the world, but it doesn't necessarily involve uh, killing the hero. He kills the hero because the, the, the hero is foiling the plans. You mean attempts well, when- to kill the hero? I mean, in that case, I think it would come into the last category where the villain represents a certain sort of thing that's going to happen, like a way that the world is going to work, and the hero has to be a disruptor. Right. Okay. Yeah. Sure. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah, the hero has to be like the X factor that comes in and breaks things up. I mean, the relationship between Austin Powers and Doctor Evil is quite complex, especially since they're played <laughs> by the same actor. And I think it might be ripe for overthinking now that I think about it. So perhaps I need to go into the tank and see if I can come up with something. Um, yeah. Because they yeah. definitely have a very interesting relationship. So. But yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's my take on it. And going through the list that he says, um, what do you say? He says, can you get me that list again? Oh, so vi- Bond villains, Bond villains are, are um, uh, they're mostly trying to like, they're mostly try- have a separate plan, right? And the hero has to come in and stop them. Yeah. Uh, and they become hilarious whenever they become totally focused on killing Bond, right? But the, the joke is that they're never really all that focused on killing Bond. They're always into their own shit, which is why they always let Bond live, um, especially, uh, especially um, uh, Roger Moore Bond. Uh, zombies, who are trying to kill the hero. Uh, Skynet Terminator. Now, Terminator, the t- Terminator is trying to kill somebody, right? Like, the Terminator has a very clear motive. Right. Um, Skynet has a more abstract motive and sometimes just decides to dick around for no reason, which we will get to shortly. Uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> Uh, the Joker is very much a status quo villain, right? He it wants depends. to make- yeah. Well, sort of. It depends which Joker, right? Well, that's true. I mean, sometimes the Joker is just a nemesis for Batman and has no other purpose, right? He just like wants to kill Batman and he isn't doing anything else. Um, sometimes, I guess he's trying to kidnap somebody, but he's very self obsessed. And, and he's trying to sort of make, remake the world in his own image, right? And that's the thing that Batman needs to disrupt. Um, he is, he is, a, he is uh, a free artist of himself. Yeah. Now, the Cloverfield monster I've never seen because of the expert marketing uh, of Cloverfield, which didn't show me the monster, and the terrible reviews of Cloverfield, which caused me not to watch the movie. Um, But I suspect that it's probably some sort of sophisticated intellectual who runs a large corporation or something like that, right? Uh, The Cloverfield (laughs) monster. (laughs) Um, 
we could do a whole other podcast on Satan and interpretations of Satan in literature. Um, but this, yeah, it's that's awful. a whole other thing. Yeah, the adversary and all that. Giant asteroids, they're usually trying to steal the hero's girlfriend. Uh, aliens. <laughs> uh, I'm really flagging on this list. This is a long list. <laughs> a long list. But basically, um, there's a real variety. And I think that you're look, when you look across this, there's a lot of ways of otherizing, right? Like you yeah. identify the villain as something different from the hero. And you can do that along a bunch of different axes. But right. in the end, like the hero, the villain and the hero have a very specific relationship. Poli- yeah, political uh, racial, uh, whether they're alive or undead. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, is, are they, are they the villain because of a value that they have? Are they the villain because of something in their nature that they have to do? Are they the villain because of their wants and their desires? You know, like it's, it, you can categorize them in a different way, but I don't know. What do you guys think? What do you think makes a good movie villain? Other than of course, awesome one-liners and like really good snarl. (laughs) Uh, Villains are not in Terminator Salvation. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. That's well, true. Uh, yeah, we got to we got to get to that. But also, here's something I don't think uh, makes a good movie villain: childhood trauma. Yes, right. That's I think right. that there's been this move recently towards explaining everything to us in. Uh, you know, in sort of terms, in very deterministic psychological terms as to like, well, so-and-so was like abused as a child and that's why they turned into a, turned into a villain as though we wouldn't simply accept that, uh, uh, you know, that this is the way it is. Yeah. I mean, the key thing about a villain and a hero is that they're adversarial. Right, you know, like you want to have a plausible reason why the villain does it, but it should inform the relationship between the hero and the villain, and stuff like that leaves the hero out of the equation and weakens their relationship. Because heroes and villains have this love-hate relationship, right? Like, like the hero, like how sad Aeneas is when he kills Turnus, right? Like, um, like you, you, you sort of are wondering whether at some point, like, Batman and the Joker are going to, like, come around and really understand each other. Not even understand each other, but just, like, you know, people write all sorts of fan fiction where they make out and stuff. Like, there's a tension there. Um, and I mean that. I mean, like, that, they're, that they are cut, often cut from the same cloth. They're often the, the axis on which the hero and the villain turn is a specific thing that often is the key differentiator in this world. And they're usually, if not similar, then at least in simpatico on like most of the other ways that they do things. I mean, if you go back to Indiana Jones, most of his villains who are any good were also looking for artifacts, right? They were also educated people. They were also like fairly patriotic and like for their own sides, granted, but you know, um, there's a lot of similarities between those. There's a lot of similarities between Luke Skywalker and Darth Vader, which we find out throughout the series. And then there's a lot of crazy differences that we find out later, like that one was like a NASCAR driver or something. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, I, this, the reason I think of it is because I think it, it uh, this point is relevant to Star Trek, right? Mm. Because like Eric Bana... Um, we we don't really need all this information about his past, you know. He, oh, yeah. He's bad and he wants to do bad things, and that's you know, and that's enough. And like this whole story of like of uh, this whole story of how he saw his homeworld destroyed is is kind of irrelevant to yeah. to the action of the film. And I don't know that it that it adds anything, or yeah. or rather, I don't know that the thing that it adds is really worthwhile adding. 
A really interesting phenomena, example of what I'm talking about is the Vulcans and the Romulans. Because the Vulcans and the Romulans have incredibly different roles in the Star Trek universe, but they're very similar to each other. Right? Like, they're both very fixated on a certain way of thinking. They look almost exactly the same. Um, I mean, of course, in the Star Trek movie that just came out, they give Eric Bana these face tattoos to make him look different. But Yeah, no, he's the- from, like, he's like a Maori, Maori you know, hunter from New yeah. Zealand or something yeah. like that. He's like, he's like, like he, was, he was out on Romulan bike week or something. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of cheap ways to make people the other, right? In the, yeah, yeah. Face it, it, and facial hair and, you know face tattoos now. Yeah, yeah. But basically, the more you try to explain the relationship between the Vulcans and the Romulans, the less intuitive and the less believable their enmity and their their separate roles become, right? Like, letting them just be similar and serve different functions in the story creates an intuitive understanding of the fact that one is good and one is bad. But the more that you try to, like, figure out the intricacies of it, the more you dull the hero-villain relationship. Um, you, these are things that you should be able to figure out. Like, in Terminator 2, when you have the T-1000 and the T-800. They're very similar. They have some really key, key differences, and those differences really inform the whole message of the movie and the axis on which it turns. And the more that you would go into it, if there were a long section about it where it was like, well, you know, he has a rotor in his elbow, and if that rotor fails... And the, or like in, T, in Terminator 3, when they talk about all the stupidity with the nuclear weapons in their hearts and stuff, it's like, that, that makes the story worse. It doesn't make the story better. One of them is liquid, one of them is solid. That's fine. You know, that, that's all I have to care about. You know, and that makes me differentiate between the good one and the evil one. Everyone has sunglasses, which are awesome. I don't know why you care, but it is something you <laughs> never do. <laughs> well, we gotta, we gotta, we gotta get to it now. So here's here's the main event. Here is Terminator Salvation. Uh, we all saw it. I think we all saw it today, right? Correct. Yes. As as we record this, so it's not like we've had. Uh, Years and years to uh, to tease out the implications, but you know I'm going to start with this. I don't think there are a lot of implications, <laughs> right? I think this is not this is not a summer action movie that conceals hidden depth, uh, yeah. like in a way that but like it conceals a- small motorcycles in its legs, <laughs> <laughs> which is awesome. I do I do like the motorcycles in its legs. Also, my my big take takeaway. From uh, from Terminator Salvation was this. Chekhov is a pretty good actor. <laughs> oh, that's right. He yeah. was, right. He, he, yeah. was a, he was a pretty good actor. Like, I thought he was good in this. Much more than, than the... I mean, Chekhov was kind of a joke. But, like, uh, but this, he was pretty damn good, I thought. I thought. Unlike the rest of the movie. Well, yeah. okay, yeah, no, I know, okay, you're, uh, you, you, the Terminator fanboy, are, perhaps unsurprisingly, the biggest hater, so, so, uh, go for it. Yeah, I, in case you haven't been able to tell, I've been chomping at the bit and waiting to get this. Not like that I'm, I, I'm almost like crossing over into like, I'm gonna enjoy this, which is probably not the right attitude to have, but, <laughs> nevertheless, okay, I got a lot of things to say, so let me just try to preface this at first, which is saying that, you know, when I say I'm a Terminator fanboy, I basically mean that, you know, I have a very deep love for Terminators 1 and 2, and to a lesser extent, Terminator Saracana Chronicles. We good so far? Yeah, we're solid. Yep. I know you like those things. You made it. Okay, and, and these, these are very, it's very easy you know, motivation, you know, for, you know, to understand why, you know, Terminator 3 was a disappointment, and, you know, Terminator 4, you know, everybody's looking forward to it, but it's kind of, you know, uh, you know, still nervous about it, right? Because like, you know, they don't want to see something that they love to be perverted and <laughs> and have value taken away from it, right? Yeah. 
No, correct. So correct. Okay. All right. Yeah. Now it's time to to unload on that's the, that's the that's the existential state of the the fanboy. I think right. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You put it. You put it quite well. Um, and there's, you know, we just plenty more to talk about this. Because there's this, there's this, there's this tension uh, between uh, between really just just desiring this new installment in the franchise, and uh, and then also being kind of terrified that it's going to uh, that it's going to suck. Yeah, and it kind of did. <laughs> yeah. uh, okay, okay so go for it. All right. So my main issue with the movie, well, just my overall take on this. I know we don't do reviews, but just, you know, bear with me. So my main issue here, um, that overall, right, there's some very solid action scenes and, you know, the Terminator effects and the, the or the, the lack thereof, the kind of mechanicalized Terminators were great to look at and parts of it were fun. But when you get down to the main issue of the plot here, okay, follow me with this so far. All right. So the whole thing hinges on, you know, Gotta save Kyle Reese, right? Because if Kyle Reese is dead, John Connor uh, ceases to exist. And if John Connor ceases to exist, he's so important, right, that um, the, the humans are going to lose the war. Right. Right. The issue that I, the issue that I have with this is that uh, the movie doesn't explain properly why John Connor is so important. Yeah, <laughs> right. right. Okay, yeah. okay, so this is what happened. Okay, so the whole thing, again, in case it was not clear before, you know, spoilers, the rest of the, we're just totally spoiling the rest of the way. We're assuming you've seen the movie, okay? So, the I'm worried that you aren't going to because it's awful and you just want to hear something fun. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know that. I, I don't know that. Awful is the word. Disappointing. No. Disappointing in certain respects, for sure. But but you know, it delivered certain okay. things, and I'll talk about those later. The word I would use right. is goddamn ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> it's hilarious. It's very funny, but not on purpose. <laughs> oh yeah, people were laughing in my theater. Oh. I don't know about your theater, but like they were, they were like just full on laughing at certain moments, which is yeah. not what you want in your balls out summer blockbuster. Uh, yeah. Okay. All right. But so, so bear with me here as, as I'm trying to map out, you know, this huge plot hole, which is driving me bonkers here. All right. Okay. So John Connor special, right? You got to save John Connor. It's the you know driving factor for pretty much all the Terminator movies, right? So the main the, the main plot point in the movie, which is the whole you know we found uh, the the special signal, which will Skynet's off switch, right? Yeah. John Connor doesn't realize that that's a trap. Okay, and he right. should realize it, right? But the thing is that so he inadvertently stops uh prevents humanity from you know the resistance from going into the trap right? right but he only does it by accident by selfishly trying to preserve himself by trying to have uh kyle Reese saved right? right that is not to me that does not you know adequately uh you know justify his you know the the super importance of his existence compared to let's just say assuming that you know john connor thought you know that the off switch actually worked right delaying the attack to save a small group of of of, of prisoners in the prison and you know by his thought himself that is not a good decision to make at all that's a terrible decision to make okay and then okay so from there though the second problem is connected essentially the same problem is that there movies working on the assumption that if kyle reese dies john connor will cease to exist and we have no way of knowing 
that that's going to happen, right? And essentially, right. it's the whole like Back to the Future kind of thing, right? If uh, you know, if my parents don't make out, uh, then I will disappear from this from this existence. Yeah. How does he know that? Yeah. In the first two Terminator movies, Not it doesn't matter. Explained. Yeah, because you still matter. don't want Linda Hamilton to die, right? So it doesn't matter in the first two Terminator movies that there's this elaborate time travel paradox thing that's happening um, because there's still a killer robot after you that like forces the issue, and you don't have time to argue semantics, you know, like or like <laughs> argue metaphysics or anything like that, right? You still have yeah. to run from the killer robot. Whereas this movie has no sense of urgency about it in terms of like what needs to happen because a lot of it is bogged down in semantics and like preconceived notions about what's supposed to happen in this universe. Sorry, I interrupted you. No, 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 no. So, so, okay. So, no. Do, do I need to go on my list of things here, or just, just <laughs> at least, at least validate or not validate? This is. The- oh no, yeah, I, I mean, I, I, part of that. I mean, isn't isn't part of this though? What you have to accept in order to watch the movie that like John Connor is important. His existence is important. Isn't that just kind of a uh, a postulate of the Terminator franchise? No, I, I, I well. Oh, well, yes yeah, no. that, okay, yes, that is, yeah. that is a postulate of the, of the franchise, but it needs to be properly set up in the movie. And one yeah. of the other big complaints I have about this is that, is that so John Connor is, uh, you know, he's portrayed as an important person in the resistance, but not the leader. Right? Not, not yet. You know, not everybody's like... Though at, the, at the end, when the... Okay, sure, but okay. Somehow he's got the John Connor talk show <laughs> that has to be, you know... <laughs> Have you know higher ratings than Rush Limbaugh, and from a you know from a uh, from a proportional perspective at least, and he carries enough weight so that he can tell everybody to ignore the regular order coming down, to not go and attack Skynet. Mm-hmm. That's again not properly explained, not properly set up. Mm. You know, you got talk about suspension. You talk about suspension of disbelief. You know, I'm I'm all for that, and I you know do it on a daily basis. Um, and I've done it plenty. Of, you know, I, I've very much factored that into my love of Terminator. But this one just was not. You know, was was was. It, it wasn't cutting the muster in terms of <laughs> you know, allowing me to do that. Yeah, it didn't hey. give me that opportunity. About two-thirds of the way through the movie, Mark, and this is connects to what you were saying, because I totally agree with you in a lot of respects. I, I feel like I came up with my objection to this movie, my main objection okay. to this movie, which is – and now I'll, I'll preface it by saying that I did have a favorite moment in this movie. And there's one really great moment in this movie, and that moment is when John Connor is flying in a helicopter near the beginning of the movie. Um, why he knows how to fly a helicopter is not explained. And the helicopter crashes, and um, the camera – has inside the helicopter and is upside down so that John Connor is, is like upside down in the helicopter and he like takes off his harness and he falls up really hard and I thought that was a really cool moment and that's the best that part. was a nice visual sure, yeah. <laughs> that's not the same but, again, not to say, the movie does have a lot of you know nice little moments like that we can get into yeah. that later but yeah but I'm but. damning it with faint praise uh, but no I figured out that if, if you here's my challenge to you guys and, and to, to approach it sincerely is that without including any preconceived notion or reference to the lore or stories of the Terminator universe, right? Like without in- assuming a lot of information uh, about Terminator that we know from previous movies, can you explain to me in very simple general terms what this movie is about? <laughs> like, because there's a lot that's happening in this movie, right? Like, there's there's like plots A through J, and they often share space, like, very equally. So explaining what it's about, it's like, well, you see, there's a guy, right, and he's on death row, and he comes back as a robot in the future, 
And then, and that's when it sort of like fades out because at that point the story isn't really about him anymore, is it? Well, you know, you know see, there's other guy. And this guy, he is a resistance fighter against a robot army, right? And he has to fight a big battle against the robot army for a particular reason, which is, uh, you know, and like all of the different characters come into the movie with really strong impetuses and really strong points of view, but the actual movie doesn't really have anywhere for them to go. And there's no reason why they chose these particular events as opposed to other events to make this Terminator movie about. Like, do you guys know what I'm talking about? How like there isn't a clear logline for it. I mean, the first Terminator movie, there's a robot trying to kill a woman and she doesn't want it. She doesn't want to get killed. Right. And then the second Terminator movie, there's two robots and they're going to fight. Right and like even in, in in the Indiana Jones movies, first one uh, they're looking for the lost ark. Second one, like they're in a temple full of, of little kids. And in the third one, they're looking for the Holy Grail. And the fourth one, what is it really about? It's like, well, I guess they're looking for these crystal skulls, and it makes a little bit of sense. But like, even though each one assumes information, you can still explain what the movie is about pretty clearly. It has it's a story. It has a point, right? Whereas this was a terrible story because it's all over the freaking place. It is um, definitely all over the. It is definitely all over the place. But if I had to say it is about something, I guess it's about John Connor trying to save his future dad. It's a yeah, coming but, of age. It's a coming of age story, really. It's about you know he's he's saving his dad, but he's also finding the the father within himself. Well, I will tell you this. Then why why isn't he on screen for half the movie? And why is so much of the movie about this crazy cyborg dude? Yeah, it's about the. It, well, really, yeah, no. In in a way, the the most compelling plot of the movie is about a crazy cyborg dude uh, who was manufactured to be half man, half machine, rejecting his machine half and the triumph of the human spirit. Oh, that's what it's about, uh, Pete. Uh, come on, it's about the triumph of the human spirit. <laughs> well, but, no. but it's so vague. That's not a very clear reason for a movie to go forward. Triumph right? of the human spirit. Triumph of the Just human triumph, spirit. Triumph of the will. Triumph what are you? Of the what are you on the? What are you on the side of the machines? <laughs> I'm on the side of the screenwriting doctors who want a clear logline for Christ's sake. You know, <laughs> explain, <laughs> hey Pete, for 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 those people who have not read, you know, story by Robert McGee, like uh, tell them what uh, tell them what a logline is. Okay, so a logline it's the classic. You're in a pitch meeting or you're in an elevator, right? And you have to explain what your movie is about to somebody in like one sentence. Right, and it usually starts with "there's a guy" or like "there's a girl." Right, and usually mentions what the villain is, and it mentions what the stakes are or like what the frame of it is. Right, so in the, one of the books I read, he praised um, the movie Four Christmases with uh, Reese Witherspoon and Vince Vaughn as having a very clear, obvious logline, which is it's about a couple with divorced parents that has to go through four Christmases. Right, um, it's like a young couple. That's right. They add the the addition. It's like a young couple whose relationship is strained by going to four Christmases with their four divorced parents or or giraffe. Classic Park, right, has a great yeah. logline, right? Yeah, like, yeah, dinosaurs, yeah. Dinosaurs come back to life and try to kill people. Well, no, the logline for, for Jurassic Park is there's a paleontologist who ends up on an island with a bunch of kids trying to escape uh, from a bunch of dinosaurs who have gone wild killing people. Right, like it's not just about the setting; it's about the characters and what they do. Um, and in this in this movie, they, I mean, it, there's a certain bias towards a protagonist, which certain people I think would have warranted issue with but it's really hard to make a movie or any story that manages to go forward without having something resembling a protagonist either in a group or as an individual so right? let me address uh, kind of the um not to excuse this but to explain this the meta narrative around the terminator salvation and it's you know awkward genesis um is pretty interesting right um which is that the you know the, this, i think the first draft of the script the reason why there's so much of marcus of this like you know 
you know, strange cyborg bot who was from, from Death Row, is because the, the original draft of the script was supposed to be centered around him, and that John Connor was supposed to be a minor character. Right, well, that makes it totally shows through in the movie. Right, it looks like they then, were going to make about Marcus, and they cut half of it. Well, yeah. then they, they got Christian Bale to play John Connor, and then they realized oh. they couldn't, you know, they couldn't have him be a, a minor character in the movie, right? And so what they did was they brought on uh, Jonathan Nolan, I believe, that it being you know, the Christopher Nolan's brother and the screenwriter for Dark Knight, to do heavy revisions to the script as well. Right. And you know, I'm sure he did his best, but it's pretty clear what happens. This movie was just a mess, right? Well, that, hearing that, that makes perfect sense because that was what I was thinking. It feels like two movies that are grafted together that have very little to do with each other. Um, and that the characters are all looking past each other and they're not interacting in meaningful ways over the course of the movie. Right. Um, and, yeah. and, 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 and I mean, again, and crazy, and, which yeah. is actually, you know, there's a, there's a fun, it's funny that there's like, there's a genre of movie at the moment that is kind of like that. And it's movies like Syriana and uh, Babel and, and Crash in, in right. a way where it's these like, you know, separate, separate lives where everyone is extremely solipsistic and yet their lives kind of intertwine, uh, through circumstance, but it does not. No, it does not make for a compelling single narrative. And and I agree that for your summer movie, you want a clear, uh, you like you want a clear arc of like a hero triumphing over something. Yeah, and even in a movie, I bet you you could go through Syriana and just sort of subbing out different characters, find the through line pretty clearly. Because yeah, no, Syri- Syriana is yeah. not all that great. Well, no, no, that's a, that's true. It's better than this movie. Um, but yeah, no, it's uh, I don't know. I mean. The other thing about this movie is that the whole art design seems to come from Contra Shattered Soldier. Uh, where, <laughs> where, like, it's like all the enemies are Contra villains. They're like giant robots yep. that spout smaller robots. That yep. You have to shoot little robots. That you have to shoot the big robot. You have to run around a lot. Yep. And it's just, oh, it's like the whole thing looks like <laughs> FMV from a PlayStation 3 game. Uh, and, I mean, I would like to play that game, I guess, for a little while. But, I mean, I liked Contra Shattered Soldier fine, but, like, the dialogue was really forced. Uh, can we talk about Common for a second? Yeah, for sure. Common sure. in this movie. And I don't know. I, I This is one of my pet peeves that I kind of regret, but I don't like Common. I don't like that guy. <laughs> um, and and I, I contend that one of the reasons why I don't like him is he wears these smug hats. Like, he has these everything <laughs> he's in, he has, like, a freaking smug little hat that, like, nobody else would ever wear. Right? It's like, it's like a cabbie hat, but it's, like, suede and, like, really nice. And, like, he's like, look at my cool hat. And, it, I mean, he was married to Erica Badu for a long time, so I know where it comes from, right? Like, they're all wearing crazy hats all the time. And this movie, he also has a crazy little hat. He has, like, a little cute little resistance hat that nobody else wears, right? And it's, like, puffy at the top. It kind of looks like something the guy from the village people would wear. Um, And he, like, and every time, did you guys notice this about Common? Every time he's in a scene and he has a line, they would cut away to, like, a wide shot, and he would overdub his line, right? Like, Common says almost nothing on camera, it sounds like they put it all in in post-production, and I wonder I, if I, there's something to that. I didn't notice that, but what I did notice is that Common and the other character, Blair, I, I, uh, I think, were very uh, you know, prominently featured in the first half of the story and then essentially disappear in the second half. Is this not, is this not correct? Uh, yeah, they have, no, they have nothing to do when the actual climax of a story comes along. They are developed right. and discarded. Yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the actual That's climax of the story others. is like a guy throwing a chair through a, uh, a superfluous piece of glass for no reason. <laughs> like that's the, that's the that's yeah, the no, absolutely right. And rather than at the end of the uh, at the end of the movie when um, 
when Christian Bale has defeated proto Arnold Schwarzenegger. Oh my god! <laughs> well, let's, let's talk about that for a second. Let's talk about it for a second. I thought that was great. Okay, that was, was like awesome. one of the few things that, that was, was really stand out about this movie because it but looked it was, amazing, right? It was you couldn't tell. Ridiculous. <laughs> that Giant, was, yeah, oh, that was man. some good fan service there. Giant junkless cartoon Arnold Schwarzenegger. <laughs> he was junkless in a yeah. way. Like I mean, it was. It wasn't even that. That it was just too dark to see no. his junk. He was junkless. He was like Ken down there. Yeah, there's like a close up of his crotch, and there's like some smoke in front of it that's trying to convince you that lo, there's genitals in there, and you just can't see them. But no, there's nothing there. There's nothing there. And in the summer of Doctor Manhattan, I feel, I think that was a particularly cowardly choice. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Is that what the historians are going to call it sometime yeah. on the summer of Doctor Manhattan? I, I really wish there'd been a shot where uh, somewhere in the movie where they'd been like. Because they never talk about it, right? They're like, man, why was there that giant naked dude robot? <laughs> like, what was up <laughs> with that guy? And, like, they never even mentioned him. It's like the weirdest thing. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, if I ran into that, I would be mentioning it on the ride home. I would be like, even if I'd been shot a couple times or run through with a steel beam or whatever, I'd be like, dude, did you see that, like, seven-foot naked guy running around all angry and shit? Like, what was up with that? It's about, you know, Pete, it's about the triumph of the human heart. It's really about, it's, it's, about, it's about the electrocution of the human heart, is what it yeah, is. Yeah, the transplant of the superhuman heart. Actually, that's very meta too, because they take the heart of Marcus's story and they transplant it into John Connor's story, <laughs> being like unsatisfying for everybody. Can I? Uh, is it okay if I say what I thought now? Oh, of course. Oh, please, it's, please. And it's not. I don't. I don't really disagree. I think you're both right about it. Uh, I I didn't have as much invested in it being great because you know I like I like the franchise, but it's not. You know, it's no Dawson's Creek. I mean, I live <laughs> or, I live or die with that franchise, or you know, right. Gossip Girl or what have you. But um, uh, I felt barraged by this movie. You know, mm. I felt like I was really like my heart was pounding fast and I really felt like a fight or flight response and I wanted to like go and hide uh, when I got when I got out of the movie. I actually cut myself at one of the big jump out of your seat moments because I <laughs> I jumped out of my seat and like hit my uh hit my leg on the bottom of the plastic armrest of my chair and apparently Ow. those things are sharp or they have sharp corners or something like that. But um you know that uh, it was like it was sort of traumatic just to just to watch. I you know I thought, and is that like is that really enjoyable filmmaking? I'm all for thrills, but it it was kind of like it was sort of relentless. Yeah, I mean, well, if it, I know it was barraging you, but you don't have to worry about it because even if it's firing a Gatling gun, a hundred rounds a second directly at you from ten feet away, it's not going to hit you. You can just jog <laughs> just away from it. <laughs> like, don't worry about it. No, no, no. I totally know what you mean. Because the first few minutes of the movie, I really like the visual style. Asshole. But by the end of it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Is that what you think? Asshole. Oh, shit. Oh, sorry. I shouldn't curse. Oh, bleep. Oh, bleep. <laughs> bleep, bleep. Yes. Uh, no, yeah, I know. No. no, it's more that the 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 loud noise is going to happen. I'm a, I'm a wuss in movies like this, though. You know, whatever. Whatever. I'm definitely going to use the phrase like it's like Shia LaBeouf carrying a filing cabinet down a flight of stairs. <laughs> like that is that is one of my new admonitions for movies is if your movie sounds like Shia LaBeouf carrying a filing cabinet down the stairs, like you're doing something wrong. Where it's like run, oh my god, get in the car, you know if that's half your movie, then like you're doing something wrong. I don't know. You're yeah. on your way. You're you're halfway to a uh, best sound effects editing Oscar <laughs> if your <laughs> if your movie sounds like that. I didn't make you 
five seven one or anything awesome like that. <laughs> <laughs> what no, one bon- this year? What wasn't it something like Transformers? I don't know. I'll look it up. You guys go. On. I, think was, I think it was Dark Knight, right? Dark Knight one. It was sound editing or sound design. Anyway, uh, oh, I had a really cool insight in the middle of this movie. Um, I wanted to share with you guys because I feel like I finally figured something out that's been bothering me for a long time. Um, uh, are, are you listening? Are you, are you on board with this? Yeah, I had a okay. I had a really cool injury while I was in the <laughs> middle of this movie. <laughs> yeah, what, yours yours sounds better. <laughs> Oh, okay. So, do you remember the moment... Okay, so there's this old lady who shows up, and I was really disappointed she wasn't Dame Judi Dench, because that would have been awesome. But, <laughs> I remember the old, what, Jane, the old lady. Jane Alexander? Is that who it was? Yeah. Okay, well, there was this old lady who, of course, had no reason to be in the movie, and she shows up and gives everybody vegetables. <laughs> And right in the middle, when they're having an argument about whether or not she should give everybody vegetables, which was a great scene, by the way. Really, totally great. Thanks for writing that one, guys. Um, a giant robot hand crashes through the ceiling and, like, <laughs> there for no reason. And I just crack up laughing in the middle of the theater because it's like, you shouldn't give them those vegetables. And it's like, robot hand! And it just, like, abducts her. And I just, I just cracked up. And I figured out why, and, it, and this, is, um, this is using some of the tenets of improv stuff that I work on a lot, which is that it's a moment that's unusual, but that confirms something that we know is true, right? And, that, and, and it, it's, it, it, uh, it reveals this thing to us. And the thing that we know is, is true is that the sort of cogency and plausibility and the feeling of naturalness that happens throughout the course of a movie, um, like it, the fact that, oh, you know, Hugh Grant just left Julia Roberts and now she's going to go be sad but then he's going to come back and the sense that there's a contingency to it and it's all like there's a there's an arc to it that you're going to follow and it's going to go somewhere is entirely artificial right like all of that stuff is a fraud right it's an illusion and we buy into this illusion and a lot of really funny things are when people reveal illusions to be illusions like any joke which where like penguins talk about wearing tuxedos Right, and it's funny because you know that that's an illusion, and you're revealing that like penguins actually don't wear tuxedos, um, and in fact, like that we anthropomorphize animals in order to make our own lives seem natural in ways that they're uh, artificial. But yeah, I realized that like it revealed to me that the sense of cogency and the sense of things making sense that's in a movie is just a trick of the light. Right, and that in fact the world um, is tremendously chaotic. And in the Terminator movie, there's no reason why a giant robot hand doesn't crash down and kill any of the main characters at any random moment because this is the kind of world in which that happens. Um, I'd go you you one better in a movie like this. The um, the function of you know moments of tranquility or moments of normal life. The function of those moments is to be disrupted by giant robot hands. (laughs) That's true. That's true. My favorite moment like this. in all of movies, and this is not a praise, this is, this is condemnation, because this is rarely done on purpose, um, is in the movie The Time Machine, um, which is when Guy Pierce is going to, to save his girl in Central Park from a mugging, right? And the idea in The Time Machine is that he, keeps, he builds a time machine to try to save his girl in the past, but he can never save her, because if he were to save her, then he would never have a reason to build the time machine. So there's a paradox. So every time he tries to save her, something else happens that kills her. Um, and there's a moment where he saves her from the mugging, and she like crosses the street and waves to him, and is run over by a stagecoach that just blindsides her from off screen. And it's a really funny moment. And it's like very unnecessarily and, and unfortunately funny. How does but it I end? It, I don't know. No, uh, how does it end? How does the movie end? Uh, does he save her? 
No, no, he gets totally killed by a stagecoach, and that's just it. And he has to go back to the back in time and be like, man, that sucked. Like she was killed by a stagecoach. No, no, no. It, it ends with him like falling in love with some some chick in, from the future. Like you know, they have the Morlocks and stuff, and he goes into the far future, and, and the Eloy, instead of being really fat and like really sort of uh, decadent, are actually like totally hot and wear loincloths. Um, and the Morlocks, instead of being sort of like intelligent and fairly human, are like monsters <laughs> by Jeremy. So he falls in love with some loincloth chick and like decides that he's going to live in the future forever and everything's going to be great, which is All not right. what happens. Um, and then she gets hit by a stagecoach, which makes no sense because they're in like the year three hundred thousand. But it's a callback, <laughs> so I, I entertain the possibility. But yeah, like I, I think it's really funny when um, nonsensical, horrible things happen to m- minor characters in movies because that's not something that is part of good storytelling. So we sort of assume it's never going to happen, right? And like we sort of assume it's never going to happen in our own lives. Like you don't think, oh, I'm talking to my friend walking across the street and there's just a bird is just going to pluck his eyes out, you know? Like like it's like that's not you don't think about that unless you're really twisted as you're walking yeah. across this I, I guess you know to um to give the movie at least that particular to defend that particular part of it i think what was going on was that skynet had tracked kyle reese there right well, i know so the explanation that, so why the robot was, you know the the robot was like you know poking around and trying to grab it people. wasn't i mean it wasn't even kyle reese don't you think that uh skynet had the capacity to track weird cyborg Marcus? Oh, Marcus. Perhaps, yeah, yeah. Yeah, because of the chip that he so easily ripped out of the back of his head when he found out what was going on. Yeah, also, despite the fact that it was a control chip. That's yeah, one yeah. of my pet... I freaking that, hate that. That was, oh, rather, was a, that was rather a consequence-free decision there to, <laughs> to like perform impromptu chipectomy. Was, that what the actually, heck is was the, it a control chip or not? It's a little bit... I thought it was a little bit ambiguous there. Oh, I thought that there's a moment where they show a picture of his skull in, like, the crazy hacker vision. Like, like hacker vision is another great phenomenon in movies, right? Where, like, show you what it's like inside a computer operating system, which in this case is full of geodesic domes and, like, Buckminster Fuller balls and stuff. <laughs> Um, and like, and it's. I think there was a little blinking light that said like control chip on it, and the implication was that like Skynet has been controlling him the whole time. Um, uh, and, and, but of course, they did forgot to program into the control chip any sort of like prohibition against tearing out the control chip, um, which, <laughs> which would be fairly well, easy to was, do. I mean, this was the thing. Like, you, you know, you can't turn humans against humans, right? I mean, I guess, but the thing that's, I hate it when people are mind controlled in movies and they can just decide to break the mind control at the climax of the movie with no other justification. Yeah, but Pete, it's a, it's a metaphor, right? It's, uh, you know, I don't know. I, I think that like how much, how much cogency we expect from, uh, from a movie that is supposed to be as disposable as the popcorn that you swallow down while you, while oh, you but watch that's, it. That's, that's just, you're just, that's just, you're just passing the buck. You're saying the movie's supposed to be bad. There's no reason to make it bad. You can make it good. Yeah, that's 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 the Michael Bay defense of bad movies. I think (laughs) which is like who cares? Well, who cares? We're overthinking it. Gosh darn it! Beep. And and also, I think you know. (laughs) (laughs) And I I think that uh, you know everybody who got into the making of the next Terminator movie, you know, realized that you know Terminator was something is not as disposable as say Transformers, right? Mm. You know, there's like a real, you know, pop culture touchstone that we're talking about here rather than like, you know, cheesy 80s cartoons. And toys. Well, here's the, here's the thing. There are good movies in the past for Terminator, right? Like, yes, yes. Whereas there's only toys in the past for Transformers, so no one really no, and, cares. And, 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 a, and a cheesy 80s uh, cartoon movie as well. Let's not forget that. Mm-mm. Well, yeah, yeah I guess so. That actually was a pretty good cartoon and an excellent, an excellent film. 
Yes, yes. With like Orson Welles' last performance. I'll, I'll also say this about this. I think one thing this movie further reinforces is how awesome James Cameron is as a director. Um, and yeah, how that's a good point. It is to replicate what he does. He's so good. Like, we'll, you, we'll, yeah. we'll never let go of how much we <laughs> like James Cameron. Well, I was thinking about this on the way back, too. All of the James Cameron movies that I can think of off the top of my head have these really bizarre worlds in which a lot of very unfamiliar, alienating things happen. Sometimes they're actual aliens that live under the ocean. Sometimes they're robots. Sometimes they're aliens that live in the sky. You know, like, um, sometimes there's crazy flamethrowers. Sometimes there's a huge, crazy, multi-timeline historical epic going on. But he always manages to isolate the really human moments that connect yes. the characters against this bizarre drastic backdrop like he's able to go really far outside the realm of like normal possibility or plausibility and still hold on to those identifications i mean in terminator 2 the connection between ed furlong and arnold schwarzenegger is really great you know the one between linda hamilton and arnold schwarzenegger is also interesting um and it's really hard to put your finger on exactly what it is that makes that possible but he does it in they all have this really human heart to them, um, like Marcus does uh, after <laughs> in this movie. After before it gets punched out by the robot and then electrocuted, and then of course is fine for a transplant operation just a couple of minutes later. But um, but you know what I mean? Like this movie, the characters were just looking past each other the whole time. Oh, I mean, they, I, they solved that. They solved that Pete, by uh, by um, saying that he heals himself very quickly. Oh yeah, no, of oh, course yeah. he's like Wolverine oh. now. But- <laughs> By the by the way, I think we, I'm surprised we haven't pointed out that this is already the summer of uh, electrocuting oneself to keep electrocuting someone to keep them alive. Right? No, totally this is the perfect follow up to Crank Two, is it not? Yeah, totally. This, I mean, honestly, yeah. I, I wish I'd seen Crank Two. I definitely leaned in. I was like, Crank Two time, man. Crank Two. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Let's see if we can go for three. These things always come in threes. Uh, like, or is right. this the movie? Oh, what, a, third, a third electrocution this summer? Uh, yeah, a third time or in a which third, somebody gets, a third like, film with Anton Yelchin this summer. <laughs> Perhaps oh, yeah. there'll be a movie where he gets electrocuted back to life. Um, or, yeah, or <laughs> is this be, like the movie? Or is it like Dante's Peak and Volcano, right? Or like Armageddon and Deep Impact. And the pattern is like Crank 2 and Terminator Salvation. And the pattern is like movies in which people are implausibly electrocuted back to life. (laughs) 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 Or or is it the one, or is it Wolverine Origins and Terminator, where it's um, movies with with terrible movies with people with metallic skeletons? Is that that really what it is? Yeah. Uh, I don't know. can we shift gears a little bit here and talk about some things that we actually liked? I mean, we did we did talk about uh, the Arnold fan service, which I think we all agreed was pretty great, right? It's hilarious. It's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. I couldn't even talk about it. It's I thought so it was, silly. I thought it was fantastic, but like, but, so is that a ridiculous? He also, silly? I mean, that was a great. I don't know. You know, I guess they did it. They took that cast when he was uh, playing the first Terminator, so that they could build the first Terminator. Well, that's not his. That's not his body. It's a different Austrian bodybuilder's body. It's his face, though. Oh yeah. Yeah. Well, he's bigger. This guy was much bigger than Arnold Schwarzenegger was back in the day. That guy was a contemporary bodybuilder. You could tell he was huge. Arnold Schwarzenegger back in the day was not that big. Oh, I guess so. There's been an upward trend in the the bulk of bodybuilders. Oh, oh yeah. Oh, I mean that. That's a whole other kettle of fish, but yeah, bodybuilders. I don't know. I would say, I would say, I would say, look at watch Terminator One again and take a look at Arnold's bulk. Uh, he he's fair. massive. Well, yeah, <laughs> or Conan. I mean, he looks pretty big in Conan, but yeah, no. Okay, so fair enough. It was Arnold's face, but that was, I mean, you know, that was some damn good CGI there. He it looked, it was like practically Conan worthy. I I 
was expecting him to say, crush your enemies, see them driven before you, and hear the lamentations of their women. I wasn't yeah. expecting but it so, to talk. <laughs> so, so again, like, going back to the kind of thing, things that we enjoyed, I thought that like once they got into Skynet, um, the action there was excellent. Like everything pretty much before that was like, okay, this is crazy, right? You know, like, you know, a lot of sand, a lot of dirt. This is not what I'm expecting from Terminator. And then they get into the Skynet plant and it's cool, right? How did you and then, like the, and then the, uh, sorry. The, the one-on-one, uh, you know, John Connor versus the Terminator combat there, I thought really was, was you know, a good callback to the, f- the final battle in Terminator 1, right? But then to bring this back to, to, to you know, to the main complaints the overall we had, right, is that these are cool things going on, but when you stop and just, you know, give a little bit of thought of what's going on, it's like, how is it that, you know, Skynet is not sending swarms upon swarms of its robots down there to take care of this fight? <laughs> didn't notice them coming or didn't, you know, couldn't shoot down the one helicopter that came to pick up everybody. Yeah, yeah. Right? Just, yeah. It was harder to get out of Cyberdyne yeah. One in Terminator Two than it was to get out of the Skynet headquarters in in uh, yeah. yeah yeah absolutely yeah definitely uh, you know what I I'm always reminded in movies like this of the famous quote from Anton Chekhov which is that if you put a robot b- motorcycle in the beginning of your movie somebody has to lasso and ride it before- <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> It's just, it's a rule of drama. <laughs> I'm, I'm reminded uh, of the, uh, the famous quote from Pavel Chekhov. That oh. is uh, the nuclear vessels. <laughs> can we, can we... Michael Ironside, always Michael Ironside. Like, <laughs> yeah, he's he he's fantastic. He's, he's just ridiculous and awesome. He's, I'm looking at the greatest picture on IMDb, which is a picture of Kelly Osborne at the premiere of Terminator Salvation. Is she and, wearing like a Terminator eye or something no she's she has uh blonde bleach blonde spiky spiky hair uh as far as we're as far as like implausible things but i mean like here's here's the thing it was easy for marcus and john connor to get out of skynet at the after they killed proto arnold because uh you know all the because the human spirit had triumphed at that point right like that, you know, there was no more. There was no more human spirit triumphing to to happen. But um, yeah. can we talk about the ridiculousness of the Skynet VIP suite where Marcus wakes up after <laughs> <laughs> after breaking in? Like either Skynet is you know machines and about efficiency, uh, or else it's not. But why you know, did it have so many control panels that needed to be operated by fingers? Right, exactly. And <laughs> yeah. like, why? Yeah, and why were there all those interfaces and screens around at all? Don't the robots have like visual displays built into them? And they do because they had tons of shots of that. This yeah. guy, yeah, but, I remember. I, yeah, Skynet is basically communicating with itself uh, via Twitter. <laughs> right, it's constantly tweeting instructions. You know, yeah, that yeah, thing. yeah absolutely. Like tweet. terminate, no, or you know, grant entry. Like what, you know, whatever. Like it's all. Yeah, yeah totally. I, there was some great robot POV in this movie, <laughs> and that's that's definitely rising to the point of one of my pet peeves. I think where it's like, oh, you know what, my favorite movie is like uh, not quite human too, because it had some great robot POV shots. <laughs> <laughs> like it's like, um, and it, no one will notice that like the robot POV is very different in this Terminator than it was in the previous ones. And I mean, what exactly do you gain from excessive robot POV? That, like, would, be, that would be a great overthinking it article, by the way. If anyone, if anyone wants to guess right that article. 
uh, editor at overthinkingit.com, right? Like comparing robot POV shots in science fiction movies. I give you bonus points if you include not quite human or not quite human too. So, <laughs> well, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about the, the robot POV from Terminators one and two and, uh, and what we've seen in, I guess three. And now by this point where it's become a kind of a tired old joke, right? And there's not a whole lot that differentiates that between, you know, term, uh, what you see in Terminator 2. But just by simple fact that, like, you know, it's been done so many times, it's become a tired old joke. And that, I think, unfortunately, is what uh, Terminator without James Cameron has become. A tired, a tired old joke. joke yeah. <laughs> I give you that. bonus points if you include Jordy LaForge's uh, artificial eyes in Star Trek First Contact. <laughs> <laughs> All right, there, there, there is a PO, uh, you know, electro POV in yeah, there. Yeah, well, robot eye POV. POV there's like, a great what? POV on that, which is the board cam, right? The board cam in that movie is hilarious. Oh, yeah, good point. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, so, right, so like... Uh, do, why would why would the Terminators work by having English words spelled out in their displays when they when, you know when they recognize something like wouldn't that all be done uh, electronically at a lower level like rather than like the display pops up you know John Connor terminate and then the, you know the brain has to process ah read the words John Connor terminate uh, you know it's a plot hole. <laughs> yeah, that yeah. that is a silly thing, but that, that you know, I think it's easily overshadowed by all the other incredibly silly things yeah, that yeah. happen in this movie. <laughs> there were so many. God, <laughs> I, you know what I love? I love the shot of the first T eight hundred because remember, there's the shot where John Connor takes out his T Mobile sidekick and he plugs it into the wall. Isn't it wonderful how all the robots have USB ports? Yeah, exactly. Know, yeah. Firewire cables, yeah. And he types in the secret code, which is O-V-E-R-R-I-D-E, into like his little code, his little code box. It overrides the lock, and it opens, and he goes in, and there's this little white wire. And then a T-800, the first one you've seen, though it doesn't look that different from the other robots you've seen, comes onto the screen in the foreground, and like you think he's going to notice the little white wire. And there's this crazy musical cue where it just goes like... Because <laughs> um, the scene is over, right? John Connor has escaped down the hallway, and then all of a sudden there's a robot, and it's like robot time and the robot doesn't do anything and they go on to something else i thought that maybe i was the only one who noticed why do the the robots why do the terminators need a jaw (laughs) why did i wanted them to bite at him when it was just their heads i know right i was thinking the same thing because they have teeth they have a jaw and that t-800 that first one that you see where it's where he's like and it's the oldest joke in the world where he like steps in and it's like wait i thought i heard something didn't someone just come down this way? <laughs> he has such a determined chin, yeah. right? His, he has such a jutting uh, yeah. chin. That it was like I a thought, Hogan's Heroes moment, for Christ's sake. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, yeah, yeah, yeah. Why, do they, why are they built? In fact, why? I think some of the best robots were the motorcycle robots because they're, they're not built to look like humans, right? Right. They're built to look like crazy, awesome Contra villains. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, boy. Parting, what a movie, man. Oh, boy. Parting shot from either of you? Um, babies, mamas, don't let your robots grow up to be Terminators. <laughs> <laughs> so how are we doing? Let's take stock of the... Uh, let's, take st- let's take stock of summer movies so far. Uh, Wolverine... Didn't see it. Didn't see it. Yeah, I heard it was not very good. Star Trek. Thumbs up. 
Thumbs up. Yeah. You know what? Real quickly, I saw that again for the second time, and though I was able to, you know, um, you know, nitpick a little bit more and you know, plot, spot some more plot holes, still held up as a very enjoyable film. Mm. Awesome. It's a movie about the triumph of the human spirit <laughs> <laughs> and Vulcan spirit. <laughs> yeah. Well, I suppose. Yeah. Um, though it does suffer from backstory itis, right? Where like everyone's like the the sort of deep psychological underpinnings of everything. I mean, Spock in a way is part human and part machine. You know. Well, I mean, he's yeah, he's emotionless to a degree. Right? Yeah. Um, well, he's, if you want, he's yeah. part emotional and part emotionless, right? And well, that's so, what the, yeah. the, the the reinterpretation of that character is what Commander Data is all about, right? Where they basically take the Spock character and they make him an artificial life form to give you an extra something to talk about because they're both emotionless right yeah 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 well i mean spock has emotions he just chooses to ignore them right exactly uh angels and demons oh god no didn't see it didn't Didn't see it and uh and terminator oh that was so silly thumbs down matt uh, thumbs thumbs down not even thumbs kind of sideways or sideways pointing down a little bit straight up disappointed man I mean, wow. I don't know. I, I would watch it late at night on TV, but it's not worth eleven dollars. It, uh, it 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 has me kind of like hoping they don't make a sequel. To be honest, mm-hmm. like I, I kind of disliked it that much. Well, I think that I think that a sequel they they'd know that they were talking about Christian Bale now. Yeah, yeah, right. yeah, sir. Yeah. And he would be and he would be lead, leading the the resistance. Though you know, I I I guess you don't really if the the team fumbled the ball once, what you know, you don't have a lot of faith in them not to fumble the ball the second time. I don't know. The only thing that might might redeem redeem uh, Terminator is that if they get to the point uh, where they need to send Kyle or they have the opportunity to send Kyle Reese back and they don't because they realize that it doesn't change anything for them where they are now. <laughs> like, oh, uh, wait a minute. Mm. Yeah, that all happened. And, uh, you know, uh, let's, let's keep fighting. I think they're going to remake the first Terminator movie with Chekhov as, uh, as, the, Kyle, yeah, as the Kyle Reese part. That's not a bad and, idea. Uh, and, and, no, and it's Jack, a terrible Jack- idea. That's a <laughs> terrible idea. It's not a bad. You've had worse ideas, you know. <laughs> I definitely, I definitely have. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, so if you uh, have seen Terminator or you haven't, uh, and want to agree or disagree, or you have something to say about elitism, about classic works of literature, or about uh, movie villains like the Terminators, uh, they ca- they. Take a licking and keep on ticking, those Terminators. Uh, email us at podcast at overthinkingit.com or call the voicemail at uh, 203-285-6401. That's 20-EAT-LOG-01. Make sure when you call, you uh, give us your name and your exact uh, longitude and latitude, including minutes to two decimal places, <laughs> which was which was astonishing and wonderful. Uh, and as always, follow us on oh, follow us on the Twitters. We're uh, we're over tweeting it on Twitter, twitters.com slash over tweeting it. And uh, also, we have a new uh, Facebook page that's kind of ramping up, so you can be a fan of us uh, on the Facebooks. That's oh, yeah. that's great, you and uh, you know the home for everything is www.overthinkingit.com, the site that subjects the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably, it probably does doesn't deserve. It probably doesn't deserve. deserve. It
da, 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 da. I'll be back. <laughs> if you are listening to this, you are the overthinkers. Live with me if you want to come. <laughs> <laughs> He's not a tumor. <laughs> <laughs>